Hey listeners, welcome to Death Walks With Us. I'm your host, Angela, and in this episode, we will continue to explore the craziness that is Richie and Cynthia. But first, I have a few things to discuss. I have changed my mind about not using trigger warnings, and this episode, I will use it just once, just before I talk about the death of a child so that you may skip ahead. In the days after I recorded my first episode, I looked at the news online, and before I go into this episode, I'd like to take a few minutes and discuss the news. I came across a video about a man attacking another man in court. This man was at the defendant table and could not protect himself, so why was he attacked? Because he allegedly murdered this father's baby's mother, Nitisha Lattimore because she allegedly might have miscarried his baby. I'm going to say this one more time. Allegedly, he stabbed her to death because he thought she miscarried his baby. But it did not end there. If this is true, this man is a monster, for he took her three-year-old son, the son of the guy who attacked him in court. Here's that trigger warning. You might want to skip ahead and threw the baby over a bridge into the Ohio River, alive. I'm going to keep tabs on this case, as this is despicable, just absolutely disgusting. The trial is supposed to start in August, so we should have more information then. Another disturbing case comes out of New York City. A woman was pushing her three-month-old child down the street, in a stroller and a man walked up to her and put a gun to her head and killed her. She was staying at a woman's shelter close to where she was murdered. Her name was Asia Johnson. At first when this happened some of the news reports were confusing but the father of her three-month-old has been arrested for executing her. He viciously attacked her when she was pregnant with his child which on the last episode I discussed how assaulting a woman while pregnant increases her chances of being murdered if she leaves him. The police are calling it a domestic incident. I know the word usage is to ease public fears that there is not a madman out there gunning innocent people down as they walk the streets. That it was an isolated incident, but truthfully, when people hear it, was a domestic incident, they are like, that's a private issue that does not involve society. Domestic violence is a public health issue. It affects more than just the couple involved. It not only affects their close friends and family, but it affects society as a whole. Society has created this gender hierarchy that allows some to think they are entitled to those lower in this hierarchy. But not just that, there is so much death and destruction. Since this pandemic has started, the death of women at the hands of current or former partners has increased from three to four murdered women a day. But they are not the only victims. Their children, their siblings, their parents, their friends, and even innocent bystanders are murdered alongside them. This is not a domestic issue, it is a societal issue. I will be covering these issues in future episodes when they are relevant to the cases. 
I don't want to take away from this case and how narcissism factored into it. We left off with Richie being arrested and keeping quiet for months. After being in jail for three months, Richie finally broke his silence and asked to speak with the detectives about what really happened that night. So, in March 2016, Richie and his court-appointed attorney met with the detectives, which, with what is to come, I wonder why his attorney even agreed to this. Did he think it was a good idea, or did he have no choice, as this was what Richie wanted? I'm thinking the later. I mean, what a freaking hell he tells. To begin, Richie's attorney tells them it makes sense to meet with Richie, as there had been a plan to kill Angela, and he wanted to discuss a plea deal. But of course, the detectives told the lawyer that they needed to corroborate what Richie says before they can offer anything. So Richie's story begins in October 2015, roughly a month before Angela's death. He stated that midweek Angela reached out to him that there had been a death in the family and they needed to go to Alabama. Remember, they cannot take the kids out of state, and this is Angela's week with the children. She wanted to see if he could take the kids early and then let her extend her week so that the time with the kids would be equal. Richie actually agreed to it. This is true. There was a death in Christopher's family and Angela wanted to go to support him. And Richie did agree to this custody change. It's documented in the emails. So be in the middle of the week, it was agreed that Richie would meet Christopher and his son at the school at 3 p.m. when their daughter got out of school. Usually, they do not talk to each other, but Richie said this time Christopher approached him and started to detail a plan that he needed Richie to help him with. This plan was so that both of the men could get full custody of their children. Richie says that Christopher handed him two photos that proved that he and Angela went out of state for vacations against the custody agreement, and he would testify to to that in court for Richie. If he helped him prove Angela was cheating on him when he worked his overnight shifts, Christopher supposedly handed him a phone so that he could call him one night when he was working and Richie could come pick him up to go catch Angela in bed with another man. Richie claimed that he questioned if this was a good idea or not. You know, got to show that he has a reasonable side. But Richie also had to throw out there that he wasn't surprised those two were having issues because that's Angela's M.O. Anyways, at 2 a.m. Friday the 13th, Christopher supposedly called Richie on that burner phone saying that he was pretty sure the guy was at the house and Richie needed to come get him to catch her in the act. So Richie picked Christopher up at 2.15 a.m., they drove to the house where Christopher used a key to get into the house. Remember, this is Richie's tale of what happened in the wee hours of Friday the 13th. They go into the bedroom, and it looks like Angela is in bed with another man. But when Christopher pulled back the covers, it is just a body pillow. But Christopher goes nuts and starts stabbing her. Richie stated, Angela is not the type to go down without a fight, and starts fighting back. Richie just stood there, but he eventually makes it to Angela's side 
to check her pulse, and while he's doing that, she reaches up and scratches him. Realizing it's Richie, she just says, I love you, to which Christopher then starts stabbing her more. Richie says he tried to confront Christopher, but Christopher said, if you say anything, I will kill your wife and daughter. And also tells Richie if he attacks him now, it will look bad on Richie as they are in Angela's house. So Richie continues with his tale, saying Christopher took a red towel, wrapped the bloody knife in the before putting in his back pocket. They exit the house and Christopher then thinks it would look better if the door is kicked in. So he locks it and he kicks it in. Driving back to Walmart, Richie said he had to drive with his wrists as his hands were all bloody. I believe that Richie may have drove home that way. That is such a small detail that I don't think someone would make up, though I don't believe Christopher had any part in it. For one, that frenzied of an attack would have covered Christopher with blood, and his co-workers would have noticed. There was no time for him to clean it off of him and his Walmart uniform. As Richie said, he dropped him back off at 2.45 a.m., just 30 minutes to murder his wife. I mean, if there had been time, Richie could have washed his hands. Richie claimed he then went home and washed his hands and crawled into bed with his wife claiming that he did not wake her up. Richie gives them permission to go to his apartment and get the cord that charged the cell phone and the photos Christopher gave him. But they were damaged as Richie claims his daughter found them and brought them to her bedroom and crumbled them up to hide as she recognized them from a trip out of state and she did not want to get her mother into trouble. When asked why he did not say anything earlier about this, it was because after witnessing Christopher murder Angela, Richie was afraid of his violence. The detectives asked Richie to clarify certain parts and give more details, which Richie was not able to do. For example, they asked him if Christopher had changed out of his bloody clothes and he did not answer. He just looked confused. But they were only playing with Richie with these questions. They knew Richie might try to implicate Christopher, so they pulled out their ace card. Christopher worked at Walmart. Every action is recorded on video. They knew Richie took his lunch at 2 a.m. And when he was supposedly stabbing Angela, he was on camera at Walmart sitting on a motorized cart in the entranceway. Booyah, Richie! But of course, Richie kept insisting he was telling the truth. That is a classic narcissistic move. Presented with the evidence and still insisting you are correct that that's not true. But it doesn't end here with his bullshit. Richie needed a bigger shovel to get him out of the hole he had dug. But first, the detective, being the good detectives they are, wanted to make sure Richie cannot use this tale at all and talk to Christopher. As the school meeting, video evidence from the school eventually showed they did not approach nor talk to each other like Richie said. As to the photos that Christopher supposedly gave Richie, the detectives had gotten those photos and when they questioned Christopher on how Richie could have gotten them, he said that he had made a bunch of photos after Angela's death for the kids to have and that yes, they did take the kids out of state when they were not supposed to and they tried to be careful to make sure the photos could not show that. But then Christopher flipped the photos over and the date on the back said 11 2015 
These photos were printed well over a month after the so-called planning happened, and the 19th was six days after Angela's murder. They did investigate to make sure Richie was not wrong about the times. So besides video confirming that he never left the premises, they found it would have been impossible for him to leave the back entrance. That area is heavily surveilled as Walmart has some pricey merchandise. To enter or leave in the back, one needs approval from the person in charge who must unlock the doors or bays. So Richie's tale obviously did not work. He needed the time to think of a story that could link all the evidence together. The only problem? This guy is an idiot who thinks he can outsmart the police. He has been able to get away with so much that he thinks people will just buy what he has to say because he is the one who says it, which is a classic narcissistic move. They believe that everyone will believe them because they are them. They are superior. That line Angela said, I love you, was just to feed his ego, to look more innocent, like a hero or something. So, the police did talk to Christopher, because they had to, you know, in case Richie used that lame-ass story in court. It was heartbreaking. Christopher had moved back to Alabama to be closer to family. He lost weight. He could not sleep eat, couldn't work, he was truly suffering. They questioned him when he came back to finish a few things that needed to be done when he came back to North Dakota. The police asked him why it could not have been possible for him to stab Angela and he said, because it's Angela. Since the first time I touched her, it's always been Angela. That's just heart-wrenching. In May 2016, Richie has a new tale that still involves Christopher, but you know, I am trying to keep this short and I'm going to do a quick summary. Richie lied. These tales that developed while in jail are somewhat hard to keep track of, and unlike the one with Christopher, these other ones are not introduced into Richie's trial. But in this new tale, Richie is called to Angela's house by Christopher, where he finds her, checks her pulse, she scratches him, says, I love you, Tim. But this time, there are two strange men there. All this was done to place Richie at the scene. Richie had tried to manipulate fellow prisoners into this tale. And this tale keeps changing, too. And I'm just going to say it's crazy. And you should definitely read the book. Wynn goes in-depth about his manipulative time in jail. Like, it's crazy how he thought it would work. Wynne really did her research on this, and if you want to know more, check it out. It's way too much to put into this podcast, but it's worth it because it's so manipulative and shows how he thought people would buy it. Oh, one last thing about Richie's time in jail. He tried to break out of jail. He got caught trying to break the bars to the window to get out. Yeah, he did that. All right, fast forward to the trial. On Dateline, his lawyer looked like he did not want to be there. That's just my observation from watching the short clip on this episode. This lawyer did not call anyone in Richie's defense either. Richie did not take the trial seriously. He and Cynthia kept blowing kisses to each other, kept looking at each other, fucking sickening. The trial started on December 13, 2016, 
On December 16th, they did closing statements. The jury left at 10.33 a.m. At 11.45 a.m., they sent word they had reached a decision. At 12.04, everyone was back in the courtroom where they pronounced him guilty of murder. On May 4, 2017, he was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for viciously attacking the mother of his children while she slept, eventually killing her in that attack. Richie's trial barely lasted three days. The jury left at 10.33. One hour and 12 minutes later, they were saying they had reached a verdict. Now, I, I never sat on a jury, but I know that most of that, like not that whole, they do not go in there and immediately sit down and start discussing. There are some formalities. So my guess, it didn't even take an hour to even deliberate. They probably just sat down, thought him guilty, but did some formalities to make sure that they couldn't, I don't know, I've never sat on a jury, but I don't even think they probably spent like 30 minutes discussing it. After his conviction, his wife Cynthia cried to the news that he was a good man, would never do anything to hurt his children, and she stood by him. Angela's oldest two kids were in Cynthia's custody. His wife Cynthia had expressed before this that she did not understand why they would arrest him, that they had nothing. It was just, quote, a bunch of hot air. Now, hold on to your seats because we are not done here. We are now going to discuss the craziness that is Cynthia. Take a deep breath for this shit storm. On September 14, 1990, Cynthia was born to Roberta Fladelian. Okay, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. She was, was born to Roberta in Grand Junction, Colorado. By all accounts, her mother was not the greatest mother and put her own needs before that of her children. Fifteen months after Cynthia's birth, she met her husband, Eric, and they moved to his home state of North Dakota. They had two children together, Abigail and Michael. Roberta just checked out when it came to parenting. The kids could pretty much do what they wanted as long as they left her alone. At 11, Roberta and Eric divorced, and this is when Roberta told Cynthia that Eric was not her father, and she did not know who Cynthia's father was. It was just a one-night stand. Cynthia was devastated. Eric had been her father. He treated her like his daughter. Things got worse after the divorce. Roberta was homeless because she was trying to find a new boyfriend, which meant Cynthia took care of her younger siblings when it was their time to be with Roberta. Cynthia was a tiny human being, at barely 5 feet and under 100 pounds. While working at the Dairy Queen, she met the boy who would soon be her first husband. By this point, she was living with Eric as the relationship with her mother was too damaged. Cynthia had crashed her car and after repeatedly attempting to get a hold of her mother, she had a friend pick her up which the crash happened because she could not get a hold of her mother when she found her mother's brother doing drugs in their apartment and she fled the apartment. This arrangement at Eric's did not last long as Eric, like countless other Americans, 
became addicted to pain meds after being prescribed them for an injury, and by her senior year, her future first husband's family let her move in with them. Which his family noted that whenever Cynthia did not get her way, she would pout and stomp her feet. So they would just give her what she wanted to avoid issues. I'm going to say it. That's not a good idea. Cynthia had worked hard in high school and scored a scholarship to Mana State University. She married her first husband in 2010, and in December, her first husband transferred to her college so they could set up house. It did not last long, as both really did not want to get married, but did. They were only 19. Eventually, Cynthia made a new friend, and being slightly older than her husband, when she turned 21, she, for the first time, started to party, and that's when she turned to other men. She felt that is what people at her age did. People at her age do do that, but should not do that when they are married or even when in a committed relationship. Reading her first husband's account of Cynthia, you swear he was talking about a bratty child, stomping feet, pouting, not talking to him, and pouting all day. A bratty, spoiled child. Anyways, her husband eventually looks at her phone and sees a text message to Cynthia from her friend about Cynthia's cheating. He confronted her about that text, but he still wanted to work on their marriage. She did not, so he moved back home. Their divorce was finalized 18 months after they wed, which was also about the same time as Richie and Angela's divorce. This is when she meets Matthew, who is extremely important to Cynthia's story. Now, Wynn's book goes a little bit into the relationship, but Dateline gives the impression that they had just been friends, but that could be because that's all Matthew saw of the relationship. They had met at the bar he worked at, and he would talk to her on slow nights and do shots. On Dateline, he says she felt a connection to him because one night, they had an in-depth conversation. Yeah, it may have been more than that, as in Wynn's book, it is described as a more sexual encounter, which Cynthia wanted more, but it took months before she accepted Matthew did not, and she blocked him as a means to not obsess over him. The fall of 2012 is when she met Richie at their mutual workplace, as she worked the morning and he worked the evening. On New Year's Eve, she did not want to spend it alone, and looked up Richie's number and called him. They ended up staying in her apartment for three days, both calling in sick to work. She says because Richie and his two kids lived with three other adult men, they moved into an apartment together in February 2013, two months after meeting. The only real issue I see there is that two months isn't really long enough to get to know someone and to see if they'd be good with your children. You should really get to know someone a lot longer than that before introducing your children around them. But that kind of says a lot about Richie's parenting skills. But back to Cynthia. Cynthia had a huge thing for Matthew and Cynthia brought Richie to the bar Matthew worked at to try and make Matthew jealous, as she was with a supposedly much better looking man. Matthew did not care. He was seeing someone. So Cynthia continued her relationship with Richie. She would have totally dumped Richie if Matt showed any interest. 
By April 2013, Cynthia was pregnant. She had a rough pregnancy and wanted to quit college, but Richie encouraged her to finish, and he supported her. They were married in August 2013, eight months after meeting. The baby was born premature on October 18, 2013, and by the end of the year, Cynthia was calling Angela's children her children. Richie and Cynthia were frustrated with the custody battles, and Cynthia supposedly said to Richie at the end of 2013, wouldn't life be much easier without Angela? Richie said he can't now because she's pregnant. Cynthia says she was confused by that statement, but never questioned it. Cynthia eventually got a teaching position at Lewis and Clark Elementary School, where she taught kindergarten. This is where she he headed after dropping the eldest daughter at Longfellow Elementary School on the morning of November 13, 2015. Remember, she dropped Richie's daughter off at the school across the street where Richie had viciously murdered this child's mother almost six hours before. For a supposedly loving, daunting father, he did not care if he caused his child's stress from seeing all the police at her mother's house, possibly could have seen them taking the body out in a body bag. Hmm. On the day of the murder, the police had come to the school to interview Cynthia, where she confirmed an alibi for Richie, that he came home after work and was in bed each of the three times she got up to tend to the children. Fast forward to Richie's arrest. Cynthia went in for questioning. Cynthia was just hostile and childish. She is a teacher and she's just huffing at their questions and rolling her eyes, does not care that Angela is dead. The police try to humanize Angela, but Cynthia just rolls her eyes. I get it. This seems to be a tactic that always worked for her. So she resorts to it. But honey, it don't always work. The police tried to show her the evidence that Richie was lying to her, that he'd been having at least three affairs, and she adamantly refused to believe them. She accused them of getting that information from Angela's emails, that that was something Angela made up. But as to the co-workers, it turned out Richie had told Cynthia that he lost his job because the two had lied about him, and she believed it. She would not accept the truth from the detectives. Which I honestly don't blame her for not believing the detectives because detectives can legally lie to you in interrogations. They can present false information to you to try to get you to confess. Unfortunately, when they do that, it does cause suspects to question their reality and can cause them to give false confessions because they believe the police. These are supposed to be people you trust. But what had happened was Richie had lost his job because he got physical with a patient. But he had told Cynthia that the two co-workers lied about sexual relations with him. And that's what got him fired. Cynthia wanted to believe Richie, not the police. Cynthia would not accept anything the detectives had to say. She would only believe them if they had video evidence of Richie having sex with these women, the text messages, and what these women said did not mean anything to her. Cynthia was just hostile to them about Angela. She had never met Angela, but repeated everything Richie told her about her. Belittling Angela had no sympathy towards Angela being murdered. Cynthia did not 
believe her husband stabbed Angela. But what was bizarre was she wanted to see the pictures of where Angela was stabbed. She wanted to see Angela's dead body before she would believe anything that the police had to say. Angela was already buried, but she wanted to see her body before she would believe anything. It's just really bizarre. When she was told that Angela was pregnant when murder, murdered, Cynthia just made a little snide remark by asking if Christopher was the father because Richie said Angela cheated throughout their marriage. The police had nothing on Cynthia and even with all the tales Richie told, none of them implicated his wife, Cynthia. Now we will skip to after Richie's conviction where everything takes another turn for the detectives. The detectives involved get a message from Matthew, the guy Cynthia had been somewhat obsessed with. She had contacted him, and he was disturbed by some of her messages. These messages kind of implied that Cynthia may know more about Angela's murder than one who is not involved should know. The major one being that it was not supposed to be a knife. That had been the backup plan. As Matthew lived in another state, he agreed to come back to North Dakota and take Cynthia out to get her to talk. The police put a recording device in his car to record their conversation. Matthew picks her up and after a night out, they ride back at her place where she does not want to go in and they sit in the car and talk for two hours. I'm going to say here that Cynthia left her kids alone for hours while she went out to a bar with an old flame, something her mom would have done that she swore she would never do. She later said when she came in, her child was on the floor crying. Cynthia showed her self-centeredness to Matthew. She complained about Angela's mother annoying her for wanting to talk to the children. Linda was battling Cynthia for custody of Angela's children. She had no sympathy or understanding for what Linda was going through. She had unexpectedly lost her child that she never got to amend her relationship with. Cynthia claimed the kids were glad Angela was dead, inciting one supposed incident of a slap that she only learned of through Richie. She believed Angela was abusive to the children. Matthew, somewhat stuck up for Angela, said he got slapped by his mother and would never say she had been abusive and asked for more examples, which of course Cynthia did not have. And then after two hours, she had a lot to say. In this conversation with Matthew, she stated that she was proud of her husband, just mad he got caught because they had it planned for two years and he was just too impatient and got sloppy. She said that she stalked Angela to watch her and Christopher's movements while Richie was at work, and Cynthia stated how she got a thrill out of it. Angela had told her best friend that she thought Cynthia was stalking her. She had told Angela to brush it off. Cynthia was probably just jealous. This here actually makes me wonder if Cynthia left the kids home alone, at least her baby, on the nights that she did indeed stalk Angela as she did that night with Matthew. I mean, she was doing it on the nights that Richie was working. I mean, what of the children? At least her child. Did she bring her with her on these stakeouts? Did she leave the child home? Did she call the sitter like, hey, I need to stalk someone. Can you watch the child? Where were the children? 
I mean, Cynthia just did not care. She didn't care about anything, it seems, except for Richie. She said, people die all the time. I really don't care. She was stabbed 44 times. I don't fucking care. Are the kids better off? I fully believe it 100%. I just wish he would have flown down to Florida and killed her mom also. He just had so much anger toward her. That's why he couldn't just do one jab to the juggler and get out. No, he fucking went psycho on her because of the hate and anger. Cynthia was proud of his violence. When discussing the scratch in the DNA evidence, Cynthia said, If it was me, I fucking would have gone back and cut her fucking fingers off. I would have burned them. I would have lit the house on fire. Angela's toddler, two-year-old toddler, was in the house, and she's discussing how if it was her, she would have gone back and set the house on fire while a baby slept. <sighs> she then goes on to say Richie came home, cleaned up, and they had sex. She tried to backpedal a little bit, but stated how Richie came home, said it's going down tonight, and they discussed his alibi. Now there was no discussion why this particular night, but I think the last email exchange between Richie and Angela angered him so much that he decided that, that was it. That night was it. Angela had emailed him a Huffleton Post article titled, 11 Telltale Signs, Dad is a Narcissist. He, of course, did not like it and said he replied, I'm glad you found an article describing you, your dad, and your mom. Maybe you can use it as a guideline to change. I doubt it, but good luck. Angela replied in the email, quote, It was to help you improve things with child's name removed. Stop taking everything as an attack. When they get older, if you don't improve, they won't talk to you anymore. So stop attacking me and actually read it especially the last paragraph about the daughter and dad. That's the main point, which was about validating daughters and making them feel special. I believe Richie did not like his parenting challenge, especially by her. So instead of improving, he decided to eliminate Angela that night. And it sounded like Angela was trying to save his relationship with their daughter, but Richie didn't like Angela saying anything to him about his parenting. Cynthia also goes on and tells Matthew that she was involved in Richie's plan to break out of jail. Eventually, detectives learned how Richie was able to make all of his plans when all things in jail are recorded. Richie had discovered one of the cameras did not fully cover the meeting area in the jail, so he was able to hold up notes for Cynthia to read, and then he would flush them down the toilet later. Other inmates realized what he was doing and told the guards who fixed the cameras. Richie was extremely manipulative of other prisoners in the jail, and they did not like it, so they had no problem turning him in to the guards. May 19, 2017, 15 days after Richie was sentenced to life in prison, Cynthia was arrested. She never went to trial, as her legal maneuver was to offer an Alford plea in hopes that Judge Stacy Lauser would take it easy on her. An Alford plea is not accepting guilt. It's basically saying you will plead guilty while acknowledging your innocence because you believe the evidence against you is so overwhelming a jury will convict. Now, the Judge Lauser 
had a reputation of what was viewed as favoring the defense. To me, it seemed she stuck by the rules and the prosecution did not like how, as prosecutors called them, minor administrative errors caused her to, quote, ruin their cases. Here's an idea. Do your job correctly. Stop trying to railroad innocent people and judges could allow things to be admitted into evidence under good faith. So, prosecutors would try to get different judges instead of Louser, and they tried it in this case, but it was dismissed as what they called judge shopping. It was becoming an issue, not just with her, but others, and the courts were trying to put an end to this practice. The prosecution had offered a plea deal of 20 years to Cynthia, but she honestly did not see what was wrong with her actions and that she should not be punished as she did not commit the murder herself. So with the Alfred plea included an open plea, both counsels would offer a recommendation, but it was up to the judge to decide the punishment after some evidence is offered along with recommendations. Cynthia rolled her eyes while the prosecution talked of Angela's brutal murder. She is in court rolling her eyes as her as the brutal murder of her stepchildren's mother is being discussed. The lack of empathy and not and not even that the judge is watching you and you think the judge is going to take it easy because you roll your eyes to show how dumb you think it is and as a way to say to not take it as seriously. Cynthia was not remorseful at all in the pretrial investigations that were conducted to be used in the recommendations. To the investigator, she stuck by that she did not think she committed a crime and that Angela's children were better off without their mother. Let me say this again. Cynthia did not believe she did anything wrong, that her stepchildren were better off without their mother. The report also discussed how Cynthia showed no signs of accountability. The prosecution recommended 25 years plus 5 for helping with the attempted escape with 5 years suspended, plus no contact with any of Angela's children nor with Angela's family. Cynthia had no one who would speak for her. Her sister felt betrayed when she found out about Cynthia's involvement in Angela's murder when she had insisted that she had nothing to do with it and her sister would not speak on Cynthia's behalf. Cynthia took the stand at this hearing. I guess she thought her words were worth more than the evidence. She had come up with excuses for everything. She said she had told Matthew those things to impress him because he had a criminal background, a criminal background that he had put behind him and was improving his life. I do not know how saying your involvement in murder would be impressive, but okay. Cynthia also kept attacking Angela on the stand, that she was a horrible influence on her children. She was psychologically, verbally, and physically abusive with her children. There was no evidence besides the words of a proven liar, and Cynthia could not offer anything besides what Richie told her. She kept referring to Angela's children as her own. When asked if Angela was so abusive, why didn't she turn them into social services? Cynthia said, Richie was going to take care of it. If your partner claims their children are being abused and they will take care of it and nothing seems to be happening, follow up yourself. 
call social services, CPS, whatever child protective agency is in your county, state, or country. In Richie's case, this was part of his manipulation, and many abusers do this. They will claim that the other parent is abusing the children. It's about power and control. They want to control how people view the non-offending parent. Cynthia's lawyer had recommended 20 years, 10 years suspended, meaning she'd be out in 10. He tried to put the blame on Richie, saying that she would never have done it if not for his manipulation, and she was a productive member of society, except Cynthia would not say he manipulated her and said on the stand he was a good husband who helped in the home. Now it was up to the judge to determine sentencing. Her sentence was life imprisonment without parole, way harsher than what the prosecutor had recommended. Needless to say, the courtroom was shocked. This seemingly lenient judge sentenced Cynthia to life without parole. It was her words that she would do it again and that it needed to be done that made a very strong impression on Judge Lauser's decision. Now, I am all for re rehabilitation and feel that most people should not spend their lives in prison, but some people need to be removed forever from society because they are a complete danger and will always be a danger. I feel Cynthia is one of them. Cynthia lacked any remorse. She sees nothing wrong with her planning someone's murder just to make her and her husband's lives easier. That cold-heartedness means she will do it again. She sees murder as an easy way out of hard situations. Judge Lauser told Cynthia that what she did was the ultimate definition of child abuse as she robbed four children of their mothers and told her she had no legal right to Angela's children and that they were Angela's children, not hers. Cynthia's daughter was taken in by Richie's brother and wife who were supportive but once she was convicted and they saw the evidence against her, they cut all contact off with Cynthia, stating that her child was better off without her. Cynthia thought Angela's children were better off without her, and now her own child will be forever without her mother as she will spend her life behind bars. According to some sources, the oldest two's maternal grandparents, Linda and Russ, have custody of the children, which is kind of confusing as Linda had left Russ to be in a relationship with April, so I don't know if they got back together or just raising the kids together as friends. The youngest child lives with his father, Christopher. Because of Angela's lifelong dream, Manette State University posthumously gave Angela her nursing degree. All right, in late 2018, Richie was transferred to a federal prison in California, possibly because he kept trying to escape from prison. As of June 27, 2022, Cynthia is appealing her sentence, still sticking to her story that what she had said to Matthew was just to impress. Quoted in the news articles that she said in her testimony, quote, I said a lot of things to a lot of people. That doesn't mean they're true. Okay. So she said this, and we had to believe her. It seems she feels we are to take her word for it. Kind of a classic narcissistic move. Maybe that's why she and Richie went so well together. One unanswered question is how did the blood end up on the passenger door? Cynthia said to Matthew that she did not know how that happened. I believe that when Richie lied about driving Christopher back 
to Walmart that there might have been some truth in that there somewheres. Um, he said that he drove with his wrist because his hands were covered in blood. That leaves that seemed like such a tiny detail someone would not make up. So if his hands were covered in blood, he could have moved his arm fast and end up splattering some blood on the passenger door. I had, fir I had at first thought that maybe Cynthia went with him as she apparently had no problems leaving young children alone, but that is probably the only consistent part of all of Richie's tales that Cynthia was home. He did not try to manipulate the merging story by placing Cynthia there as a way to explain away any future evidence like he had a knack for doing. His hands were probably still wet with Angela's blood and it splattered when he moved them. Which is a good thing. Because it helped nail him. I believe that Richie probably did not treat Cynthia the same as Angela, as it appeared that Cynthia may have validated his beliefs. Angela seemed to stand her ground with him, and he did not like that. He needs people to feed his narcissism. Angela confronted him when she suspected that he was cheating and did not believe him, whereas Cynthia believed whatever lame excuse he gave. She validated him and took on his belief structure about Angela being a bad parent, supporting his narcissism. Richie was a narcissist and Cynthia supported him. For being my first podcast, this ended up being way longer than I had meant, but the dynamics of the case I felt were very important and needed to discuss. There are resources out there. In the U.S., there is a national hotline that you can call and they can help you find local resources. Or you can text. Text START to 88788. They can help you find safety or help you help someone you know get out of abusive situations. One major issue is that survivors are the ones who tend to have to leave their homes to seek safety. People always ask, why doesn't she leave? Ask yourself, why does she have to give up everything to be safe? And most importantly, ask, what does he do that doesn't allow her to leave? He needs to be the one held accountable. Her motives on staying should not be the one that's questioned. His motives on why he abuses are the ones that should be questioned. Angela died because Richie lost his control over her. To him, Angela was an object for his use to boost his ego and she resisted. She questioned him about his fidelity and fought for custody of her children. It's heartbreaking to read what Angela's mother said about the abuse Angela suffered. She said no one believed her and now she's dead. For a more thorough understanding of this case by C.J. Wynn's book Wilder Intentions, Love, Lies, and Murder in North Dakota. I am ending here for this podcast. I will be posting new cases on Thursdays unless I have to do more than one episode and then I will try to post them closer together so you don't have to wait a week for the second episode. Next week, I will be discussing the 1892 murder of Frida Ward at the hands of Alice Mitchell. This is an extremely interesting case. It's very, it's kind of, I guess, sad, but not, well, because someone got murdered, but it's very unique for its time. It is a tale of a 
very dark obsession. An obsession so... So deep that Alice murdered Frida over this obsession. All right, one last thing before I go. I do have an email address if anybody would like to email me about anything that I have said on this. Uh, my email is deathwalkswithuspodcast at gmail.com. And eventually I'm hoping to have a Facebook page or some other social media site. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out uh, how to do show notes, but hopefully I will figure that out very soon. And thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast.